The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 13, Polanski meets the President of the United States. The President's white hair was entangled from the whirling blades of the green chopper. Millie had tied a handkerchief around her dark hair but still winced as the cold air blew across her face. They ran across the snow-covered south lawn of the White House and quickly scampered up the stairs to the helicopter. Once they were securely inside, the military aides pulled up the stairs and closed the door. Oh, it's so much warmer in here, said Millie as she sat down on the seat and slid over to the window. The president sat down next to her and was handed the morning paper by one of his military aides. At least it's a clear day, Chet, she said as the early morning sun shone through the trees. What did you say, Millie? asked the president as he looked up from the paper. Well, I was remarking about the weather, she said as the helicopter lifted off the lawn. The president smiled at his wife. Well, you're the one with the connections. Make a call and we'll move the White House to Miami, he said sarcastically as he continued to read his newspaper. You never enjoy the view when we leave, Chet. You're always talking or reading or being briefed on. The president leaned dramatically over to Millie's lap as he gazed out the window with his hand placed like a visor on his forehead. Breathtaking, he said with a grin as he went back to reading. If this is what retirement is going to be like, maybe you should keep working, she said as he held her hand and read the paper. Polanski had, with great courage and resoluteness of mind, managed to keep himself awake during the night. The air was stuffy inside the igloo. Occasionally he would drift off, but his head would snap back and he'd shake it wildly as he thought about what had happened. He was numb, and he probably had frostbite on the exposed parts of his body, but he was determined to get the information to the president. As the first hint of light appeared through the enlarged opening, he pushed his way out of the igloo. The light was dim and there were a few bright stars still shining in the clear morning sky. He surveyed the woods to his left and put the map back in his pocket. Five and one half miles separated him and the presidential landing pad. His head spun as he smiled like a man who had lost his mind. He leaned against his igloo hut for a few seconds as the dizziness subsided. Finally he began walking clumsily and slipped in the snow as he headed for the clearing on the other side of the woods. He repeated the words of Dr. Hudson over and over again. The future of the world is at stake. Every step through the snow-packed woods was made with considerable effort. His fatigue slowed him down and he had to rest. Usually he leaned against one of the towering trees, stopping at 100-yard intervals. The sun had not yet broken over the hilly terrain, but he trudged onward. He had gone what he estimated around three miles when his abdominal muscles contracted in, in twisting cramps. His mouth hung open and his eyelids hung heavy. He was reaching the limit of his body's tolerance. He had expended all his energy as he fell forward into the snow. He still had at least a mile and a half to the clearing. The sun crept over the hills in the distance, a blurry mass of yellow haze, and he didn't possess the rationality to remember exactly where he was. This strange-like dream world of his unconscious was now surfacing and was on the verge of becoming his reality. He opened his eyes wider and saw Barbara standing in the glaring sunlight like an angel from heaven. In his mind, he heard a gentle voice flowing smoothly across the forest. Joe, Joe, I've come to take you home, she said with a glowing and compassionate smile. Barbara, he moaned like an injured animal as he stumbled to his feet. 
He ran toward the specter in the bursting light. She remained at the same distance from him. Her arms were outstretched, and she uttered words he couldn't hear as he kept running, as if his body had tapped a hidden reserve of energy. He didn't know if he was getting closer to the clearing. He ran down the slope of a small hill and into the sunshine, and the illusion of his wife disappeared over the hill in front of him. The gully was dark and mysterious. Tops of the trees twinkled in sunlight, while the land below became tainted with a certain melancholy in his tortured mind. He stopped, and his eyes bulged from his skull. To his rear at the top of the hill, he thought he saw the ominous figure of Dr. Richards. It had to be an hallucination. Richards was larger than life, for he appeared to stand over seven feet tall, in his jet-black uniform with the symbol of the red light district blazed over his chest. His eyes were filled with a monstrous rage, and he lifted his massive arms upward as if he were going to choke the air out of Polanski's windpipe. Polanski ran up the other side of the hill in mortal fear for his life. You're a dead man now, Polanski! He heard as the low voice seemed to echo over the hillside. And dead men tell no tales! The words nodded his very soul as he crawled and scraped his way up the slope of the hill. He turned back and saw Richards advancing behind him. Richards' large hands were on his hips, but his legs were not moving. It was though he were coming toward him with some omnipotent power. Polanski pulled himself over the top of the hill and the sun blinded his eyes. He fell forward from the momentum and tumbled to the ground where he lay in the snow once again. Precious minutes passed by as the cold began to eat away at his unmoving torso. A small gray squirrel approached him and hopped over his body. This seemed to stir Joe Polanski, the half-dead man whose black beard was frozen into the snow. His thick and long black hair was a shaggy mess as he swiped the snow away. He opened his eyes and his consciousness seemed partially revived. He squinted, but not because of the incoming sunlight. It was as if every part of his body, especially the exposed parts, was in excruciating pain. He opened his mouth and let out a sound like a charging elephant as he dislodged himself from the snow. Ahead of him was a small downward slope, yet another 50 feet below him. Slowly, in what seemed the longest journey of his life, he pushed forward on his belly. Inch by inch, he crawled closer to the top of the next hill but he would have to rest every few feet as he grunted and groaned, finally making it to the top. Beyond, bathed in the early morning sunlight, was a large open field, extending several hundred feet ahead of him. To compound his misery, the hill led to a jagged ledge. Future of the world. Future of the world, he mumbled over his chapped and bloody lips as he attempted to step onto the rocks. But he was too weak and his foot slipped on the icy parapets. He fell over and over, the sharp edges gouging into his skin. He landed in the snow in the open field, its pure white color now soon stained with a steaming dark red blood from his wounds. He tried to move to the middle of the field and feared he was bleeding to death. With great effort, he moved his hand slowly down his blood-stained jumpsuit and reached into his pocket. He grasped the polyurethane marker that Hudson had placed inside. He pulled it upward along his chest, and with his last ounce of strength, he pulled the cord. For a few seconds, nothing happened, but the marker began to inflate. Soon it expanded along the rocks and into the field. Polanski lay in the enclosed portion of a pink-orange symbol. He buried his beard in the snow, and in the distance he heard a faint sound of an approaching helicopter. It grew louder in the stillness of the rural countryside. 
Soon the clatter of the spinning blades passed directly over the clearing. Inside the helicopter were members of the Secret Service flying ahead of the presidential chopper. The pilot instantly observed the incomprehensible symbol in the snow. We've got a problem up ahead, he said to the agent in charge. Go ahead, Sergeant. We have an unidentified object at 11 o'clock, he stated. The agent looked out the window with an incredulous look. Looks like a man down there in his engine, said the co-pilot as he scanned the area with binoculars. Radio the president's helicopter to take room to five. Let's land this thing. 345 calling 97. Radio the pilot. This is 97. Go ahead, 45. 97. A5. Repeat A5. Roger, 345. So what you say, A5. Said the president's pilot as the chopper veered to the left in the distance, taking a circular route around to the compound. Chopper 345 descended slowly to the doors opened and two men with rifles drawn ran down the plank and into the snow. They scanned the area and gave a signal for the other two men to come out of the helicopter with a stretcher. They ran along the edge of the marker and lifted it up. Then they ran to the man in the snow. The agents with the rifles constantly surveyed the surrounding woods for any trouble, but all was calm. Hey Perkins, isn't this the guy the FBI described to us? He asked as he helped lift the body onto the stretcher. Never mind that, son. Get him in the chopper, replied Perkins. Quickly, they lifted the stretcher upward and rushed up the plank and into the chopper, followed by the other agents, who backed into the doorway with their rifles still drawn. Within seconds, the chopper lifted off as they were closing the door in midair. They wrapped the body in blankets as Perkins got on the radio. 45 on B2. Can you hear me, B2? This is B2. We heard you change to A5. What's going on, Perk? B2, 345 is heading to Bolton Hospital in Ferrytown. Alert hospital personnel, possible hypothermia, arrival time 10 minutes, we're carrying a male Caucasian, black hair, beard, blue eyes, 5 foot 10 inches, subject is in white jumpsuit with strange insignia, same at, repeat that last portion, 45. The insignia on the patch on this man's shoulders is the same as the 50 foot marker in the clearing below, it resembles a number 8 with a slash Contact the FBI for negative. Dispatch men to the president himself and inform him of the situation. Roger 345. Anything else? Yes. He said as he watched the other agent empty the pockets of the man on the stretcher. Subject was carrying small portable radio map of this area and some type of cartridge. He said as he paused. And a card. Looked at them and raised his brows. Subject is bleeding from the head, neck, and arms. Agent Sudbury is administering emergency treatment to stop the bleeding. This man is also suffering from exposure. He looks like he's already dead. In a few minutes, the chopper set down on a large white X on the roof of Bolton Hospital. The doctors, nurses, and orderlies were standing next to a portable bed on the chilly hospital roof. As they touched down, the chopper doors sprung open and the agents ran down the plank with their body on the stretcher wrapped in gray blankets. In rapid succession, the hospital personnel took over, laid him on the white sheets of the bed and rushed him into the hospital. They were followed by Perkins and Sudbury while the other agents stayed behind. The president's helicopter slowly set down. 
The door was lowered and the president emerged with Millie and his press secretary in two aides. Several agents burst out of the doors of one of the side houses and ran toward the president. Mr. President, Agent Perkins reported that the potential assassin is in custody at Bolton Hospital in Ferrytown. Everyone clear the room at once, said the president loudly. We've just gotten out of the cold, said Millie. Then go to one of the cabins, Millie. Everyone out of here now. The president walked over to the receiver, which was already on the table. This is the president. Describe what you saw in that clearing. Thank you, Perkins. This is a classified area. You are to bring those materials over here to me at once. I want that man guarded and his presence at the hospital kept secret. I want the recordings of everything he says. He will be monitored and guarded from outside the room. You will relay the contents of those recordings to me and me alone. Is that understood? What about your national security team? No, to me and to me alone. president pushed down the hook and summoned one of the agents from an adjacent building. The agent came racing through the door within seconds. John, do you have a video recorder? Yes, Mr. President, we do where we show the movies. Well, bring it in here at once, he ordered as he walked over to a large green vinyl chair and sat down with his coat still on. He felt as though he were in a helpless, lonely position. Those symbols in the clearing showed the existence of Project Hudson and had to be kept secret. As he sat in the chair, he realized he had been betrayed in some way by the men who had assured him that everything had been purged in the project. Now he needed competent advice from the very men who had deceived him. If the project were still operational and made public, the threat of nuclear war would loom over the world. Action had to be taken in Arizona, but it had to be in total secrecy and neither the agencies or the Pentagon would be alerted. He knew if anything leaked to the Soviets, he could spark and ignite a total response from their nuclear arsenals. He picked up the telephone once again and summoned his press secretaries and one of his aides to the room. Moments later, they walked through the door, but seemed baffled as to why the president had cleared the room. Mr. President, what's going on here? asked his aide, Jim Curry. And why hasn't Warren been called in here? We should act as a team if uh, there's any crisis, Mr. President, said his press secretary, Rich Neal. Wait said the president as he walked toward them. Jim, Rich, what I'm about to speak to you must never be repeated to anyone at any time. It concerns the gravest matter of national security and leaks could be fatal to every man, woman, and child in this country. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They looked at him and were still confused by his behavior. Why don't you all sit down, he said as he took off his trench coat and flung it on the chair. He loosened his tie and rolled up his sleeves. How do I begin this? He said as he folded his arms across his chest. Over 25 years ago, three sectors of our government, CIA, FBI, and the Pentagon, began a project on the scale of the Manhattan Project of the 1940s. It, of course, was hidden from the people of this country, the Congress, and most of all, presidents of the United States. Its existence continued unabated until two years ago when the Senate Intelligence Committee was investigating these agencies. It was at that time that Senator Bradford, using his position as committee chairman, 
dug and dug until he found the tip of a large iceberg, an obscure memo relating to a top-secret project called the Hudson Project. Bradford, thank God, brought his information to me. I called FBI Director Monty and General McNally of Army Intelligence into the Oval Office. Guess in retrospect, they told me what I wanted to hear. They assured me that they were not directly involved, which was a lie. They also assured me they would disband the Hudson Project, and they pleaded with me not to fire them, for they thought the project had been authorized by previous presidents. In the weeks that followed, I flew out to Arizona and went to the town of Redstone, and I saw that the project actually existed. Although impressive, I ordered it disassembled. I was told by these people that the people who were directly responsible in all the agencies in the Pentagon had been punished. Now, there's a startling development. A few minutes ago, a Secret Service helicopter, which is ahead of ours, discovered an incredible sight. A huge polyurethane marker with an arrow through it and a man in a technician's uniform, all from that project. The two men looked at each other and then to the president like he was daft. In his excitement, he had left out details that may have confused the men even more. Our Mr. President, he said curry as he looked at Neil again and then back to his boss. I'm a little bit messed up here. I, maybe you can backtrack a little. Yes, of course. The marker is an infinity symbol with an arrow through it. The logo of this Project Hudson. The white uniform worn by the men in the clearing was the same as the ones worn by the technicians of the Hudson Project. What was the purpose of the project, sir? Asked the dark-haired Neil. Rich, I don't mean to be flustered, and I don't know what I can tell you. You must keep your silence. He said as he stomped on the other side of the table in the center of the room. His back was to them when he spoke. Project Hudson, he could hear them move closer, and then he turned to his trusted friends. Project Hudson is an all-out effort to transport nuclear weapons to strategic positions under the most populated cities of our adversaries. The options are, one, hold them at our will, two, annihilate them, said the president as he looked directly at the two men. Mr. President, I don't mean to be questioning your every word, but... Uh, what you're suggesting is most irregular, to say the least. Time travel? That's incomprehensible. Laughed Neil as he shook his head. Man is incapable of that. I would add, Mr. President, that someone is perpetrating a colossal hoax on you. I agree, Mr. President. This is ludicrous, said Curry as he joined Neil in laughter. It's not funny. The President stomped over to them with his teeth pressed against each other. I've been out there. I've seen this project in action. I know it existed two years ago. I've told you I wanted some intelligent advice, not schoolboy giggling. He stomped away from them, trying to regain his composure. He picked up the telephone and yelled, Tell Senator Bradford to call me at once. He slammed down the telephone in anger and walked to the door, regretting what he had told the two men. He looked out the glass door as Perkins came running from the helicopter. He opened the door and the agent jogged into the room with the articles that were in the possession of the man in the clearing, including the uniform and boots. He was followed by another agent with a video recorder. Set this up next to the television, ordered the president as the agent carried the machine toward the large console television against the rear wall. Bill, I want you to get Maxwell down here right away. He's to keep his trip totally secret. Is that clear? Yes, sir. I've instructed the hospital administrators to keep their silence concerning the men we just brought in, said Perkins. Thank you. Is he being guarded? Yes, sir. We have a voice-activated recorder in the room also. And the man's condition. Who is he? 
or Joseph Polanski from Redstone, Arizona. He's extremely weak. He's receiving intravenous fluid, and there are nurses monitoring him at all times from a glass window in the next room. Good, I want this man alive and well. You can relay that to the hospital administrator. I have the video set up, Mr. President. Good. Perkins carried the articles across the room and then set them on the table. Bill, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the room, said the president. Yes, sir. By the way, Mr. President, I believe that the tape needs to be rewound. I will inform Mr. Maxwell at once, he added, as both agents left the room. Do you fellows know how to operate this? asked the president as he fumbled with the cartridge. It's all yours, Rich. He said the tape had to be rewound, said the president. Now, I have no idea what's on this tape, he said as Neil rewound it. The president wandered over to the table and pawed through Polanski's articles. Where would he get a detailed map of this area? It's all set, Mr. President. Maybe the tape will tell us something. Go ahead, Rich. Start the tape. The first few seconds produced a variety of colored snow on the set, and Neil checked the connections on the rear as the voice and image of Dr. Richards came on the screen. He was at a microphone when the camera was first turned on. We have only a few minutes to speak. Today is a truly great day, for before the sun has set on the rocks around this complex, we will have sent a man back through time and returned him to the present. Hail the time traveler. Neil looked incredulously at Curry. The president found the words and the ensuing response unsettling. He rocketed out of the chair and stood in front of the set watching the face of Dr. Paul Richards as he had seen from the lens of some camera in the complex. Who the hell is he? asked Curry. That is Dr. Paul Richards. He was the assistant director at Project Hudson. They told me he was working somewhere in France, and here he is in Arizona. And I don't see John Hudson, who was a director, anywhere. Wait a minute, there he is. The older fellow with the goatee, said the president as the tape moved forward. The telephone rang and the president walked over, keeping his eyes on the screen. Neil froze the picture as the president answered the telephone. This is the president. Mr. President, this is Doug Bradford. You wanted to speak to me? Doug, I'm at Camp David. I need you up here at once. I don't want to alarm you, but I have direct evidence that Project Hudson is still in operation. president walked over to the men who were discussing what they had just witnessed on the set. That was Bradford. He's coming up here, he said as he glanced at the set. All right, what have we got so far? I'm assuming that the guy who took these pictures is the guy in the hospital. We don't know that yet. Was he the one that was supposed to be sent back in time, Mr. President? Is that the area you visited? asked Curry. Well, that's correct, Jim. This installation is embedded in the rock cliffs and surrounded by some electromagnetic field. I don't understand it fully, but they can travel through that field back through time. I've been to this complex, but to answer your question, that is definitely the project, codenamed Red Light District, that I viewed two years ago. It's a code that Hudson and I came up with and devised for his project. He was supposed to use that code with me if anything went wrong when they were tearing up the installation. I have two questions, Mr. President. Why isn't Hudson in charge, and why are those people responding to this guy Richards as if he was some kind of god? Yes, it reminds me of Nazi Germany, said Neil. That's the most disturbing part of this tape. 
It wasn't at all like that when I was out there. Hudson was in charge and Richards took orders from him. Those technicians are the top brains in this country. Why are they flocking to Richards? Neil pushed the button and the machine started to roll again. They watched as a man in a pressurized suit stepped into a large tube and somehow began his journey. I believe this man is going back through time. As the man in the suit passed through different phases of the flight, bubbles rose into the air and became elongated, linear, then disappeared in flashes. It's all gone to dark, Mr. President, said Curry. That has to be Polanski, said the President. According to what they told me when I was there, and it was just theory then, this is the point where the object is actually hurled back in time when everything goes black. He said as Polanski began describing things inside the suit. Now look, look, those faint patches that we're seeing on the camera. They're the actual objects in place where he's landed. I can't understand any of these theories. All they explained to me were basics. Any school child can understand it. Well, I must be old school because I don't understand it. They were silent as Polanski described his feelings. Getting clearer. Bark on the trees is very detailed now. Sun's bright, too bright. Could be late afternoon, early morning. Don't know. See the ridges in front of me now. One is high, the other is sloping down from the first into a higher ridge, covered with leafless trees. It must have snowed here last night. I have movement. I can move now. I'm here. I'm here. I've been transported through time. Can't believe it. I'm here. I'm here. I'm sitting in the snow and I'll get out of this suit. Cameron, the helmet, was soon looking upward as he took off. They watched him dart in and out of the picture as he zipped up the suit. In seconds, the transmission ended and the screen went black. You're right, Mr. President. This must be kept secret, but why didn't you let the others in here? Warren could help us. Warren has leanings to the FBI. I can't take any chances. This is crazy. Well, you better get him out of here before the others arrive. You're right, Rich. I'll send them all down to Senator Calvin, said the President. Don't get me wrong, fellas. Warren Gannon has my complete trust and support in other matters, but there's just too much at stake with this thing. It could bring down my entire presidency, he said as he went over to the telephone and dialed the other house. Warren, this is the president. Your problem, Mr. President? Yes, there is, Warren. I want you to go back to Washington and see the members of Congress, especially Calvin. I want you to spend all of your time making a brief outline of their positions on our key bills. Yes, sir, I feel like I'm being kicked out of here. Seems like we went through all this last week. Warren, I don't think we've done enough. Arrange with Perkins, get back to Washington, and call me tonight. Goodbye. Late that afternoon, the director of the Secret Service, Clement Maxwell, Senator Bradford and Rich Neal and Jim Curry sat around a large pine table in the center of the room. The tape had been played several times for both men, who were utterly flabbergasted at first, but were soon able to view the situation from a rational standpoint. Well, Polanski hasn't regained consciousness. It would be very helpful if we knew exactly what the hell was going on up there before we take evasive action, said the tall, thin Maxwell. He always seemed to be wearing a white shirt and bow tie. His hair had never got longer than an inch. Oh, we can't count on that, Clem. We got a schematic of that complex. Negative, Clem, said Curry. He said as he held a burning cigarette. The agencies do, but we can't procure them without raising suspicion. Let's get special forces in there and stop this madness once and for all, argued Senator Bradford as his gray hair flopped on his head as he spoke. Let's get down to basics first, said the president. Why do you think Polanski was sent here in the first place? It's no mistake that he was sent here. 
He obviously was sent here for a reason. The odds favor that, said Maxwell. In my opinion, Mr. President, said Curry, I think this character Richards is bananas. Look at him at the meeting. Nobody in his right mind would go through those shenanigans. He argued as the telephone rang and Neil got up to answer it. Well, where does that leave Dr. Hudson? asked Maxwell. He must be... Excuse me, Clem, Neil interrupted. Mr. President, Polanski has regained consciousness. Perkins is on the phone from Bolton. The president rose quickly and grabbed the telephone. Yes, Bill, fill me in. Mr. President, he refuses to say anything. He says he will only talk to you. Me? I have followed your instructions, Mr. President, but he is yelling. You tell Polanski I'll be over there in 20 minutes, replied the president. And Bill, you go in that room and you try and quiet him down. I am authorizing that. Is that clear? Yes, Mr. President. Yes, Mr. President. I'll see you then. I'm on my way, said the president as he hung up the telephone. Senator Bradford and Director Maxwell were arguing vociferously. Gentlemen, please, please, we're taking a little trip, all of us, to the hospital. Mr. Polanski wants to talk to me. Three agents ran ahead of the president and his party as they entered the hospital from the roof entrance. All the doors to the rooms were closed as they walked down the corridor to room 422. They were silent and with one singular purpose, to talk to the man they had seen traverse the time barrier and obtain the first-hand knowledge of the red light district. The agent opened the door to 422 as they entered the room. The bearded Polanski was sitting on the bed, the intravenous fluid still being pumped into his body. The president paused for a second at the doorway. He tried to get out of bed, but the president motioned him back. No, Mr. Polanski, you stay in bed. You've been through a lot here. Polanski, his arms bandaged and his face and neck covered with gauze, quickly responded to the gesture of the chief executive. Mr. President, you don't know how happy I am to see you. I've got so much to report. Yes, and I have many pressing questions here. I would like you to give us a rundown, if you can, of why you were sent here. Can we talk in private? You can talk freely, and excuse me for not introducing you. This is Senator Bradford, Clem Maxwell, Director of the Secret Service, Jim Curry, my aide, and my press secretary, Rich Neal, said the president as each man kept their distance and nodded at Polanski as their names were called. Perkins left the room, shutting the door behind him. I was sent here by Dr. John Hudson, or I should say diverted here by Dr. John Hudson. Well, that makes sense. I know Dr. Hudson personally. Dr. Hudson is dead, said Polanski. Dead? How can that be? He was murdered by Dr. Richards no more than a few days ago. Well, that does it, said Bradford. I told you Richards is crazy. You're right, Senator, said Polanski. Wait, wait, wait. Let's start from the beginning, Mr. Polanski, said Maxwell as he came closer to the bed. Okay. Dr. Richards planned to send me back through time to a period of a hundred years ago to test the machinery. What Dr. Hudson did was divert me to Camp David without Richards's knowledge. Why Camp David? asked the president. Because, Mr. President, the future of the world is at stake. I understand all that. All of us here know the ramifications of Project Hudson. Its existence could very well trigger a nuclear war. That's why we have to act quickly. That's only half of your problem, sir, and the smaller half at that. Well, what do you mean by that, Polanski? Since your order over two years ago, Dr. Richards was put in charge. In charge? By whom? By the people who were involved. General McNally? Tom McNally? 
asked Maxwell. Yes, yes, that's the man. Well, it all stands to reason now, said the president as he pressed his lips together. He's not the only one. The FBI director, Peabody, and the CIA chief, Monty, they're directly involved in keeping this project going. The president nodded his head. Now he knew for sure that his friends and subordinates had betrayed him. Mr. Polanski, I gave Dr. Hudson instructions to call me if... Mr. President, Dr. Hudson was in a totally helpless position. Richards controlled all communications from that complex. The red light district was the code, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct, said the president. You say something about that was half my problem. You're not going to like this, Mr. President, said Polanski. I already don't like it, Polanski, snapped the president. Okay, said Polanski as he took a deep breath. Richards was put in power by these men after your order. Hudson was just a figurehead. Right or wrong, he still worked actively on what he thought was the original Hudson project. He soon realized that things were changing and those men I have mentioned, they knew nothing of the changes, said Polanski as the president came closer to the bed. Richards began administering a drug called QPB. Hudson said it was developed by the CIA and takes 60 days to accumulate in the body. Then with conditioning, one becomes totally responsive to the authority and to the conditioning. He conditioned them, Mr. President, and that's what's happened to all the techs. You mean the technicians, said the president. Richards calls them techs now. That explains all that screaming when you left the complex. Are you sure that Peabody, Monty, and McNally knew nothing about this QPB, asked the president. Well, that's what Hudson said. They just wanted to continue the project as it was, said Polanski. This has to be handled gingerly. Find out all you can about this QPB. For God's sakes, don't let them know the inquiry came from this office. I'm sorry, Mr. President, that's not the worst. That's not the worst? Richards is going beyond what I've just mentioned. He's planning to hold world governments hostage with those bombs beneath their cities. He can't do that. He must be mad, shouted the president as he turned back to Maxwell. Clem, get the special forces team out to Redstone with a plan. Also, I need a trusted man who can understand the ins and outs of this project. And arrest McNally, Peabody, and Monty. I don't care about the legal ramifications. Put them under arrest. Beg your pardon, Mr. President, but explaining those arrests to the press will be most difficult. Then don't explain it to the press, Rich. Put them somewhere where nobody can talk to them. They must not be in contact with one another either, said Maxwell. That's good, Clem. Very good. Can you take care of all that, Clem? Yes, sir, I can. Wait, 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 said Polanski. There's more. They all turned their heads in unison. The president winced as if he were in pain. The reason that he had to perform a test was to see whether a man could be sent back through time because he plans to send troops totally loyal to him into the cities of the world. I don't know how he's going to do this. Then there'll be a systematic administration of the drug into water supplies. I know that sounds far out, but he'll have the loyalty of millions of people toward him. Oh, this is just too bizarre. If I didn't see this tape, Mr. President, I wouldn't have believed this in a million years, said Curry. Well, you better believe it, son, said Bradford, and we better get those special forces out there now. Simmer down, Doug, simmer down. Clem will make the arrangements, unless there's more. Yes, there is, answered Polanski. Richards himself has been given three options if he's cornered. 
The first we know, option two is the destruction of the complex by a nuclear bomb. What? I believe that can be done at Richards's signal. Option three is something called the red sequence. Every tech has his role in that option. However, Hudson couldn't figure out the meaning of it. Is that all you know? Asked Maxwell. Yes. First, the town has to be evacuated, which all hell is going to break loose. We better come up with a cover story. We'll have to keep the nature of this project secret from those forces themselves. We can get blueprints of that project from Peabody and rest, but we must get them to Camp David and hide them here before we notify Richards. Clem, can you suggest somebody to lead those special forces? Asked the president. General Grayson. He'll do the job most effectively, and he'll keep his mouth shut. Get on it right away, Clem. Get those men there and get the town evacuated. Remember, we'll have to come up with a damn good reason for pulling those people out of the town. So get a cover story together and run it by me. Mr. Polanski, I don't know what to say, but we owe you a great debt that we can never repay. You can pay me back by getting my wife and kids out of Redstone, said Polanski. Oh, then you live near that complex. How did you get into it? That, Mr. President, is another story in itself. You have enough on your mind without my recounting it. Let's just say it was by accident. Don't worry about your family. We'll locate them and get them out of the area. I will look forward to meeting you once you're feeling better. Goodbye and God bless you. Bye, Mr. President. Join us next time for another exciting episode of The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theater of the Words.